Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that where sin abounds, Your grace abounds all the more. Your mercy is more. Thank You for the free gift of salvation that costs the highest price. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for the cross. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your people. We ask that You would help us open up to us wondrous, glorious beauties and truths from Your Word. Convict us, change us, move us, transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Raise sinners from the dead. Strengthen Your church all for the sake of Your great name. We ask You to do the things that only You can do by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this is exciting to say. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Those visiting, we are beginning today our journey through the book of Romans. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 but we will be focusing on verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to set the, the tone. And I thought the best way to do that was to give you the historical setting. The Roman Empire. This is the book of Romans. This was written to the saints in Rome, and so therefore... It's good for us to know a thing or two about Rome. The Roman Empire, at the height of its power, consisted of about 2.2 million square miles. It touched three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. About 60 million people who could call themselves citizens of Rome. That doesn't include those who were under the, the authority and the power of Rome. It was massive. The army of Rome was a terrifying force. The power of Rome was an enormous thing. The impact of Rome was everywhere. This book, 
that you are looking at, that we're holding, that we're going to dive into, was written about somewhere between 56 A.D. to about 60 A.D. The, uh, the dates differ. The emperor Claudius temporarily kicked every Jew out of Rome. You know why? Here's how the historian Suetonius put it. Claudius temporarily expelled Jews from Rome since they constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, Christ. Think of that. Every Jew forced out of their homes, forced to resign from jobs, leave everything they know, everything that they had because a group of Jews were following Christ. Try to get into your mind what it must have been like to be a Christian to receive this letter. Imagine being a Christian and all the Jews are forced out because of you. In AD 58, the Senate made a decree that if a master was murdered by even just one of his slaves, all his slaves would be executed. In addition to that, the complaints about the taxes being too high, being unfair and unjust, were making their way to the very top. And the emperor was considering changing that, but the Senate said, if you do that, it will throw the empire into ruin. And so the unjust, unfair, exuberant taxes remained. Imagine being a slave. And all it takes is just one of your fellow slaves to threaten or assault your master and you're all out. Imagine trying to put together the little scraps that you have, the taxes already being too much. In the days of Jesus, now they are three times that. This was the setting. This was the context of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you've been watching the news, and I trust that you have been, you know that in Afghanistan, things are terrible. The people are weeping and wailing because of the horrible way in which power was seized. It wasn't too long ago that Haiti saw their president assassinated in his own home. Mexico, controlled by the drug cartels, and they don't seek to hide it. And I could go on and on. What's my point? We are aware of corruption in government. We have seen wickedness politically. What was it like politically in Rome at this time? I said Claudius, the emperor, emperor, um, he had a wife. His wife decided that she wanted another husband and she married another man in a secret ceremony while her husband was away in hopes to overthrow the Roman Empire. Well, Claudius didn't like that, had her and everyone who was a part of it executed. His niece thought it would be a great time for her to strike and put herself forward and said, you should marry me. She had a son and said, you should adopt my son as your own. He did this. So she plotted, schemed, manipulated her way, eventually murdered Claudius, 
with poison, made a whole show, pretended that he was sick, wrapped him in warm blankets, had him hidden from the people of Rome, and then out comes her son, declared emperor. Her name was Agrippina. Her son's name was Nero. Nero now becomes emperor while Paul is writing this letter. We can look at the wickedness of our American government, corruption, lies, deception. Uh, We can point to families like the Bidens and the Clintons, and we could look and investigate and find hidden wickedness, secrecy, all types of plots. But they had nothing on these people. This is how power was obtained in the Roman Empire. This is how leadership was replaced. Assassinations, murders, schemes, plots, overthrows, and there was nothing that you could do to stop it. Nothing you could do to vote against it. Nothing you could do to... There was no protest. If you said a word against the emperor, you would be immediately put to death in a horrendous way. This was the government at the time. Nero. What do we know about him? Well, as I said, he was raised by his mother who was brutal and wicked, but he was worse. He murdered Claudius, his biological son, made sure he was out of the way so there was no threat to his power. He poisoned him. He murdered his own mother. He murdered his first wife because she didn't give him a son and he wanted another one. So he married Poppaea, who he loved until he kicked her to death while she was pregnant because she asked him, where have you been all night? What was he like? One historian put it this way. He was known to disguise himself and wander the night streets of Rome with friends visiting brothels and taverns, stealing from merchants, physically attacking citizens. This is the emperor. Around this time, Nero became infatuated with a married woman. He was also known to have homosexual relationships. He had total power and no one could contest what he said. What was the common man like? What were the citizens? What were the people like? For entertainment, the Romans watched people kill one another. The bloodier, the better. This was funded by the government. It was the national pastime. Prostitution was legal and celebrated. The emperors endorsed every kind of depravity. Uh, Nero would forgive any kind of wickedness. He encouraged it and thought it was a good thing. Nero himself married a young boy, had him castrated and put him forward as a woman. My point, transgenderism, homosexuality, and pedophilia was rampant around and celebrated during this time. They didn't murder babies in the womb. They let them be born, and then they would leave them to die on the pavement. It was called exposure. Racism was rampant. Uh, You can see the hatred between the Romans and the Jews. The Romans hated the Jews because they saw them as weak, because they conquered them. In fact, they saw everyone that they conquered as less than them. Slavery was rampant. It was everywhere. Government corruption was the norm. What was the religious landscape like? Idolatry, 
Um, they worshipped every god that they came up with. You could worship any god you wanted to, but the official religion of Rome was the cult of Caesar. You could worship as many gods as you want to as long as you worshipped Caesar because he demanded that you call him God and worship him. If you did not, you would be put to death. With so many problems, and I have just scratched the surface, with so much darkness, with everything that these people were going through, what did the Lord provide to help them? Let me tell you what He didn't do. He didn't send them a Joshua. There was no military force from the Lord saying, overthrow this wicked society, overthrow these wicked empires and emperors with the sword. That's not what he sent. He didn't send them social justice warriors to defend and stand up for their rights. The right of the child left to exposure, the right of those who are being bullied and conquered. None of that. He didn't give them permission to flee to a promised land. Go where the Christians are. Go where it's safe. He didn't do that either. No rescue from persecution. In fact, it intensified. No freedom from slavery. In fact, the numbers of slaves grew more and more. No religious freedom. It was 313, over 200 years before the Edict of Milan was passed, which made Christianity legal. The Lord didn't send any of these things to his people who were suffering under such terrible cruelty, injustice, and wickedness. What did the Lord see fit to send these people? A letter about the gospel. Does that seem unkind? Does that seem weak? Does that seem strange? Foolish, maybe? If it does, that's our problem. God is all wise. He knows what is best. And we can stand in the place and judge God and say, you should have done it this way. The Lord knows what the people needed. And it was a letter about the gospel. I love how one commentator put it. There were Jews who had endured temporary expulsion by the Roman government. There were slaves who were in danger of execution if their masters were killed. And there were citizens subject to the exploits of tax collectors. It was around this time with the backdrop of 10 years of murders, adulteries and injustices by the rulers of the Roman Empire that the Christians in Rome received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, as you and I look around our nation, what do we see? Critical race theory and all the rest of this garbage Marxist philosophies are spreading, even infiltrating the church. Political corruption all around us, mask mandates, vaccine passports, videos of forced vaccination. Somebody sent me that of a family in Australia, and this man was fighting police officers as his little eight-year-old daughter was snatched from his arms, and they forced her to get injected with the vaccine. 
sodomy and baby murder is the norm. You know what has been happening to me lately? I've been getting phone calls, told my wife, uh, people pretending to have genuine questions about Christianity, saying, uh, I'm struggling with these homosexual feelings. What does the Bible say? What do you say? What does your church say about this? Schemes and plots. Greed and false religion is everywhere. What is the solution for us? What do we need? What does our little church need? The same thing our brothers and sisters needed over 2,000 years ago. This letter about the gospel. So let's dive in. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing we are confronted with in this letter is a name. If you're taking notes, I've called this heading the God-glorifying author, Paul. He starts out with Paul. Children, have you ever written a letter to someone? I know it's kind of a lost art. I would encourage parents to let your children write letters. What, what, what do we do when we write a letter? I, I wrote, uh, I made a birthday card for my son, Adoniah. Where is he? Somewhere. Um, and after I finished my letter, I wrote, love daddy. We do that, right? We write our names at the end of letters. We want them to know who it's from. But in the ancient world, they wanted you to know who it was from immediately. Paul. Well, who was Paul? And why did I call this heading the God-glorifying author? Because of who and what Paul was. We're first introduced to Paul when? In the book of Acts. What was he doing? Stephen was being stoned. Here is Paul standing by watching the cloaks of the men who were stoning them. And why was he doing this? Because he wanted to make sure, they wanted to make sure they didn't get any blood on their clothes. They wanted to be able to fling the stones with more ferocity, more anger, and they'd be encumbered. Let me take off my jacket so I can hurl these stones with more force. And Paul stood by and said, go ahead, brothers, I'll watch your stuff. Have at it. That's our first introduction to him. In Acts 8, 1, Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was ravaging the church. That's the language of what a, an army does when they go in and pillage a town or a wild animal when they have prey in its mouth. Think of a great white shark with a sea lion or a seal and they're tearing this thing apart. That's what Paul was doing to the church. He was ravaging the church, going house to house, knocking on doors. Think of it. He was out for blood. 
Acts 9, 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was such a force that the Christians said, you know what, we'll leave. <laughs> you, you can have it. We'll go somewhere where it's safe. And Paul said, I'm coming after you. Can I have permission to travel and do whatever necessary to bring these blasphemers to justice? And he had the permission. Paul wasn't content to just deal with the Christians in his own town. He wanted to stamp out Christianity. He wanted to erase the name of Jesus. He hated the church. He hated Christ. He hated all followers of Christ. And he was on a mission. He was intelligent. He was a scholar. He was cultured. He was liked. And he was focused on one thing, the eradication of the church. How committed was he to this? Jerusalem was 150 miles from Damascus. We have no account that he rode on horseback or donkey. Maybe he did, we don't know, but we could assume he was on foot. Either way, 150 miles, that's like going from here to Fort Worth. Would you walk that far? Paul was focused. He was a terrorist. Right now in Afghanistan, we're getting news that the Taliban are going house to house looking for Christians. Some of you have read this, some of you have shared this. They're going in people's houses, give me your phone, going through the phone, looking for Bibles, looking for sermons, looking for any sign that you are a follower of Christ. And if they find them, execution. That's what Paul was doing. How bad was he? His own words, Galatians 1.13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's what he was after. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Acts 22, 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. You know, there are gangs who will say, no women and children. Paul didn't have that rule. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 26, 9 through 11, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign Cities. Why is this man writing a letter to the saints in Rome? Why is he writing a letter to Christians at all? Because Jesus saved him. 
Because the power of God is stronger than terrorism. Because the Spirit of God is stronger than hatred. The power of God is stronger than homosexuality. The power of God is stronger than every false religion combined. The most enslaving sins, drug addiction, drunkenness, idolatry, murder, child molestation, and everything else are no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's might. That's why Paul is writing a letter to the saints in Rome, because though he was a terrorist, the spirit of God arrested that man, changed that man, converted that man, and he was made alive. That's God's work. Are you here lost thinking, I'll never be a Christian. I'll never do that. I'll never believe that. Who are you? God is stronger than you. Paul never said, one day I'll be a Christian. He sought to destroy the church. And the Lord is the Lord. His power is greater. You're no match for the power of the Lord. Who are the people in your life who you may say, no way. Behold Paul. And it's very, to me, very appropriate that Paul was the one who was used to write this letter. Why? Because his life is an illustration of the very thing this book is all about, the power of the gospel. God could have had Peter write it. He could have had James write it. He could have had Matthew write it. He could have had John write it. But he had the man who sought to destroy the church write the greatest letter in our Bible about the power of the gospel. That's appropriate. But we get more than his name. I mean, his name carries significance enough. But he continues with his identity. The second heading here, Paul's identity, a slave of Christ. What is the first thing he wants these Roman Christians to know? <clears throat> these Romans who have been so beaten up, so mistreated, so enslaved and dominated by force, what would be best to tell them right at the beginning? I mean, think of it. What would you want to hear when you're bullied and beaten down and you receive a letter of encouragement? Corrupt governments and military forces and you have no power. What would you want to hear? Paul, the warrior of Christ. Paul, the soldier of Christ. That would be encouraging, right? Yeah, God's going to get him. No. What does he say? Paul... A servant of Christ. <laughs> Just let all the wind out your sails, right? What is that? Now, question. How many of your Bibles say servant? How many of you have bond servant? Yeah. Does anyone have the word slave? What do you got, Holman Christian? Uh, this is New Living Translation. New Living Translation. Anyone else have slave? The NLT is right. This matters. This matters. Why? Because there's a major difference between a servant and a slave, isn't there? A servant and a slave. Garçon in French, right? Uh, a servant, a butler, a maid. What's the difference between a servant and a slave? The servant gets to go home after work. That is not an option for the slave. There is no such thing as after work when you're a slave. You're always on duty. The servant can quit 
find another employer. I don't like it here. I'm going to go take my abilities elsewhere where I'm appreciated. The slave has no option for such things. The servant gets paid for his service. They work for payment and will stop working if they're not paid. The slave, on the other hand, works for free and earns nothing. The servant can choose to obey. The slave has no choice to obey. Paul used the word, and you know I don't quote the Greek words, but it's the word doulos, which means slave. All the time, nine times out of nine, every time it means slave. Not an indentured servant, not an employee, not a contractor, a slave. Paul wanted these saints to know that he was the slave of Christ. Many of the Christians in Rome were slaves. They would have known what it's like to be a slave. It wasn't figurative for them. It was their reality. They knew very well what it was to be the property of someone else. And Paul introduces himself as the slave of Christ Jesus. How do you view your Christianity? There's instruction for us right here. Are you a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ? And we say, we're slaves of Christ. Well, before we answer too quickly, how do you know? What's the test? Every question I ask you, I've asked myself first before I ask you. So we're in this together. How can you tell if you're a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ? Think about it. How do you live? When it comes to the word of the Lord, how do you respond to it? Do you see it as advice, suggestions, opinions, or divine commands from the Lord of Lords? Spiritually speaking, do you work for pay? Do you go on strike if you don't get paid? Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we were talking about the responsibilities of the husband, and one of the things that we talked about then, and we talk about pretty much every time, is the responsibility for the husband to love our wives, whether they respect or submit or not. It doesn't matter. Whether they do what they're supposed to do, we have a responsibility to love, right? Because the Lord commands us. Sisters, the Lord commands you to submit and respect your husband, whether he loves you, shows you affection or not. Children, the Lord commands you to obey your parents, whether you think they're reasonable or not. Parents, the Lord commands you to not provoke your children to wrath, whether you think they're the best things in sliced bread or not. If you say, I will only obey if they do what they're supposed to do, that's talk of a servant, not a slave. We're basically telling the king, I won't work until you pay me what I'm owed. And what do I feel I'm owed? The respect of my wife. I'm not going to love until she gives me what I deserve. I'm not going to submit until he gives me what I deserve. 
I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to love. I'm not going to train. I'm not going to obey your commands until I'm paid. So you basically go on strike. That's not slavery. No obedience until you give me what I want, Lord. Brothers and sisters, can the slaves say that to their master? I would have obeyed you, but those other slaves, they aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Is that going to go well? What will the master tell you? What did I tell you to do? What did I tell you to do? But they're not, what did I tell you to do? Are you a slave of Christ or an employee? How many of the Lord's commands do you choose to disobey if he doesn't do things the way you like them to be done? Lord, I would serve you. I would do this, but I haven't gotten back what I wanted. So Paul was a slave of Christ. Here's another question for you. Is there any such thing as a slave without a master? A slave without an owner. The very fact that Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, it not only points to the fact that he has responsibilities to obey, come what may, but it also implies that he is owned and ruled. He has a Lord. See, the truth in this, everybody here, children, brothers, sisters, visitors, everybody, everybody here, you're somebody's slave. Whether you like that or not, you are the slave of somebody or something. Are you a slave to your emotions? Are you a slave to your past? Are you a slave to your lust? Are you a slave to your anger? Who commands you? When they call, you come running. Are you a slave to people's opinions of you? Are you a slave to money? Are you a slave to popularity? Are you a slave to fame? Are you a slave to success? Are you a slave to family? Are you a slave to ministry? Are you a slave to yourself? The question is not, are you a slave? The question is, whose slave are you? Who is your master? Jesus Christ is Lord of all lords. Is he your Lord? Do you submit to him regardless of what others are doing? This is the test. If you're focused on what everyone else is doing before you obey the Lord, again, that is not slavery. Galatians 1.10, Paul said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Paul's focus, pleasing Christ. Do you serve him, live for him, obey him, no matter what? What's really the truth? The Lord knows, and if we're honest, we know. Is he your Lord, or are you in rebellion against his authority? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Why would Paul boast in his slavery? 
And it's not, this is not the only place he talks about being a slave of Christ. He talks about it as though it was a badge of honor, as though he was excited about it. It was a privilege. He liked being a slave. He put slave before apostle often. It was his go-to statement. Why would he do that? Wasn't he sensitive to what the slaves in Rome were going through? Wasn't he aware that this is a politically incorrect statement? They don't want to hear slave Paul didn't care about that. The Lord doesn't care about that. God doesn't care about being politically correct because he's not up for election or re-election, right? He's king. But, but, but why was Paul glad to be a slave? Why was he excited about being a slave? Because he was bought with a price. That was high, our brother Jason told the children and all of us. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a what? price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Paul was owned by Jesus because Jesus paid the price for his soul. What did he pay? Blood money. He paid with his life. He paid it all. The debt was wiped clean because he paid the bill in full. To tell us die, it is finished. But more than that, it wasn't just because he was bought. Paul was the slave of Christ because he loved his master. You read Exodus 21, 5. It says this, in the laws for slaves, if the slave plainly says, I love my master... I know that's unthinkable in our day that a slave could actually love their master, but the Spirit of God does not lie. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." He signed up willingly, voluntarily to be a slave forever. Why? One word, love. He loved his master. Paul loved Christ. Do you? Do you love Christ so much as Lord? We love the fact that he's Savior, right? Superheroes. We love superheroes. Why? Because they come in and save the day. Superman comes in. Help, Superman, I'm in a burning building. Here you go, rescue you, you're on your way. See you later, bye. Savior. What if Superman went in, saved the lady, and said, okay, now you must follow me and do what I say. Whoa, 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 hey, hey, I like the Savior part, but this Lord thing getting out of hand. No. We love the fact that Jesus is a Savior, but do you love the fact that he's Lord so much that you would say, I'm his slave, <laughs> gladly. It's a privilege to be the slave of Christ because he is a great master. I love him and I want my life to be all for him. My identity, first and foremost, is the possession of Christ. He's my master and I do what he says. This is why Paul could tell the Colossians 
slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He could tell slaves who are suffering greatly, whatever you do, you can have joy because you're actually serving Christ. Look to Him, and you will find all the joy you need. Are you the willing, joyful, obedient slave of Christ? Or are you still enslaved to the devil, yourself, and this world? What did Jesus say? No man can serve two masters. Well, you can if you're an employee. I have two jobs, right? Some of you have, my father had three jobs. You can have multiple employers, but you can't have more than one master. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or anything else. Paul's identity was slavery, and he was happy about it. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Third heading, Paul's authority. He was an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Why is he telling them that he was an apostle? Isn't Paul and a slave of Christ Jesus enough? Why this apostle language? Reason one, he didn't know them. And they didn't know him. He had never met these brethren. He had never been to, these, to this church. How do we know that? A few clues. Acts 19.21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And in this very letter, and uh, starting with verse 8, Paul says, uh, Romans, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul's hearing about them. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Paul had never been there. They didn't know him. He didn't know them. Not personally. He knew a few people, and we'll get that in the uh, greetings at the end. But he had never come to this place. How did this church even get started? We don't know for sure, but there's a commonly held belief where our brother Chris was uh, talking to us about the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, remember? And in Acts 2, you, you, in verse 5, you get this, that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia, Philemia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from where? Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, which means Gentiles who wanted to follow the way, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And how did that end? After Peter preached, after the Spirit of God empowered his preaching, what was the result? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The understanding is that among that group of people, there were some visitors from Rome who were converted. They took the gospel that they heard back to Rome and the church grew. Paul's hearing about it. He's hearing about the fruit. He's hearing good things. He's praying for them. And he's like, I want to get there. Oh, man, I'm glad I'm getting here and there and there. I've been to Galatia. I've been to Corinth. I'm sending letters, but I got to get to Rome. And until I can get there, I'm sending a letter. Paul wasn't there on the day of Pentecost. He wasn't one of the twelve. He he wasn't among that mighty work. They knew about Peter. They knew about James. They knew about John. They knew about Andrew and Bartholomew and the rest. But they didn't know Paul. Not personally. So first, for the sake of letting them know who he was. Secondly, it was for the sake of authority. He's telling them, I'm writing you this letter and I have the apostolic authority to do so. No, I wasn't one of the 12, but I was called to be an apostle. And who called him? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was genuinely and truly an apostle who had the authority to tell them the things that he's going to say. What is an apostle? Again, Uh, Chris did a fine job there. Don't need to camp out too long. But just a few things. Apostle literally means sent one. Uh, It it, it means to carry the message of another. Um, Anyone could be an apostle in that sense, right? I could tell Judah, go and tell Brother Jason, um, why don't you come over to my house next Saturday and we'll do the barber thing. He's my apostle. He's going sent by me with my message. Anyone can be an apostle. Paul's not saying that. Paul is going somewhere higher. He is saying that he is called to be an apostle with a capital A. He is the uh, ambassador of Christ. He stands as the spokesperson of Christ. Um, This word apostle, it didn't even just have a Christian connection. Ships were called apostles. Naval fleets that carried cargo and soldiers were called apostles. It was the act of being sent and carrying something. So Paul was letting them know that he has authority. He has authority to speak on behalf of Christ because he was called by Christ. Paul was first made a slave, and then he was called to be an apostle. One way to look at it is his assignment as a slave was apostleship. It was the very reason that the Lord Jesus called him. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, 
Paul talking about the appearance of the Lord, the gospel. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Paul's assignment was apostleship. What's your assignment? Slaves of Christ. What is your assignment from your master? Do you know? What have you been called to do? To be? He saved you. And now you are his property. You are his slave. He is your master. He commands you. Let me tell you this. If you're a husband, guess what you've been called to be? A husband. If you're a father, guess what you've been called to be? A father. Wives, you've been called to be a wife. Mothers, you've been called to be a mother. Children, you have been called to be a child. You have been called to serve in the area you're in. But it could be more than that as well, right? You may serve as a doctor or as a bus driver, as a pastor or as a deacon, as a missionary or a chair stacker. The assignment doesn't matter if you're focused on the master. Have you ever had a job that you didn't like and you looked at somebody else's job and said, I wish I had their job. I wish I could do what they're doing. I like their assignment. I don't like mine. Maybe Peter and John might come to mind. What about him? (laughs) Don't worry about him. You hear what I'm telling you. We can do that. We can look across the fence and say, their grass is greener. I wish I lived on that side. We could grumble and complain in our assignments. But it's because we're losing track of the master and we're focused on the work. Let me encourage you, if you struggle with this, if you've been tempted to look at another believer's assignment and complain that you don't like yours, Let me encourage you by the strange world of celebrity worship. You know what a celebrity is? Stars. There are people who will put up with the most terrible treatment just so that they can be next to someone that they admire. Someone that they're impressed with, talent-wise. Steve Harvey, the host of Family Feud, told his staff this, I promise you I will not entertain you in the hallway. And do not attempt to walk with me. My security team will stop everyone from standing at my door who have the intent to see or speak to me. Sounds like a nice guy. And yet, as cruel as that is, there are people who will drop everything to go and work for him. To hold the door for him. To get water for him. Justin Bieber cut his hair, gave a portion of it to Ellen DeGeneres, and it sold for $30,000. Hair. Why would someone do that? Because it's not about the hair. It's not about holding a door. It's not about getting water. What is it about? They are impressed with a person. 
so impressed that they are willing to spend great fortunes and great time and endure whatever it takes just to have some measure of connection with a sinful human being. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, called you to be His slave, to serve Him in the capacity that He wants you in. Will we let the wicked world outdo us? Will we grumble and complain because we don't like our assignment while they're spending $30,000 for some hair? By no means. May we have the heart that David had in Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Do you believe that? Would you rather hold a door outside than dwell inside the tents of the wicked where there's feasting and pleasure and fortune while you're standing out in the cold holding the door? If you look at the door, you'll grumble. But if you say, I'm doing this for my Lord, I love him. He loved me. He chose me. I was bought with the price. He's worthy. He's precious. And if this is what he wants me doing, I'd rather be this doing this for Him than anywhere else doing anything else. Is that your heart? That was Paul's. Paul's assignment was to be an apostle. What was it like being an apostle? Well, I'll tell you this. It was nothing like the liars and crooks on TVN, the Word Network, and all those other things. Flying private jets, living in multi-million dollar mansions, the wolves, the snakes, they corrupt, they lie, they trick, they deceive, they are blasphemers. What was it like to be an apostle? Paul's own words, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Anybody want to be an apostle? Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he gets his head cut off at the end of his life. How's that for your best life now? Paul did not despise his apostleship, not because it was easy, not because it came with perks, praise or health. It didn't come with any of that. It came with much suffering, much agony, much pain. But he rejoiced in being an apostle and said he was unworthy to even be in this role, though it came with so much pain because Christ was his focus. Well, the last heading, the final point for the day, Paul's ministry Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul calls it the gospel of God. Notice this is the gospel of God, not the gospel about God. The word gospel in your Bible is often connected with another phrase. The gospel of the kingdom. 
The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of God. The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Grace of God. The Gospel of His Son. The Gospel of Christ. The Gospel of the Glory of Christ. The Gospel of your salvation. The Gospel of peace. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus. The glorious Gospel of the Blessed God. Why doesn't he just say Gospel? Because the word Gospel didn't always have anything to do with Jesus. Have you ever said, I got bad news and I have good news? That's Gospel. It was a common term. It was used regularly. People talked that way. And this term, gospel, was most frequently used with the cult of Caesar. When there was an announcement, there was a child born, there was a marriage, there was a victory, the town crier would call out, Hear ye, hear ye, I have gospel for you. The child has been born, and it is a male child. The victory has been won, and the Roman Empire has advanced. Gospel has been brought to you today. Paul, writing to the Romans who had heard the word gospel a thousand times and had nothing to do with Jesus, wanted them to know what I am telling you is not good news based on man, based on man's ability, based on man's strength. God is the originator of this good news. He's the author of it. He's the sustainer of it. He's the creator of it. It's all about him, for him, through him. This is the good news from God. And here's what I want to leave you with today. Does that sound strange to you? Is that odd? Good news from God. If it doesn't, it's because we have forgotten the scandal of grace. God looks at the Roman Empire filled with all manner of wickedness that I laid out for you. And He sends good news to them. Imagine if Joe Biden, if he was actually a righteous man and in his right mind, sent a letter to the Taliban saying, I have good news for you from the White House. We say, what? No, what they need to hear is the bombs are about to drop. You need to return the country. That's what we would expect to hear. But good news for terrorists? That doesn't make sense. God looks at this wicked world and sends good news. Good news for sinners. Good news for the unrighteous. Good news for lawbreakers. Good news for murderers. Good news for adulterers. Good news for the prideful, idolaters. Good news for those who deserve judgment. Why? Because this is the love of God. Brothers and sisters, this letter is all about the good news from God, of God, and it is motivated by love. The love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Paul was set apart to preach the gospel, the good news that God, though angry with this world and all of its wickedness, chooses to love this world and redeem sinners rather than destroy all mankind. That's the theme of this book. That's what this letter is all about. We will be plunging into the depths of the gospel of God as we go through.
May God help us. Father, thank You for the good news. You send us good news when we deserve bad news. We don't deserve to hear good news from You. We don't deserve to have a guarantee of anything but judgment. And yet, because of Your great love, because of Your great mercy, because of Your graciousness, Your kindness, You actually send sinners gospel. Help us, Lord, to love and appreciate all that You've provided and be slaves who serve and obey You willingly and joyfully in our assigned positions, no matter what it be. For Your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen.